Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, summer is nigh upon us in New York City. It has been sweltering here as of late in the 90s. It was 95 degrees here today, um, and that is over 33 Celsius for any of our listeners abroad. And the other morning, I woke up just after sunrise, cast to walk Clementine, and it was already 86% humidity outside. So <laughs> it's it's no joke. <laughs> you know, currently, even the thinnest, breeziest of summer sundresses is barely cutting it. And at the end of the day, which more often than not for me, basically involves a subway ride home, I invariably end up collapsing into my air-conditioned apartment, a hot, sweaty mess, and immediately changing clothes. (laughs) I remember what it was like to live in New York. We have the heat in New Mexico, but we do not have the humidity. Yes. So what are you wearing to beat the heat these days? So it's actually been a Super, super hot summer here, kind of record temperatures. Um, You know, we are in the desert, but I've been wearing a lot of linen. I basically have linen pants in every shade of taupe and white that you can possibly imagine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love a good uniform. Yeah, lots of good cotton breezy shirts too. So that's what I've got going on. Yeah, you you know, it's, it's always around the same time of year that as a fashion historian, I give a lot of thanks and gratitude for living in the time period that we do because there's always more than one hot summer day when my mind turns to what it must have been like for fashionable women in the summer 150 years ago living in New York. Right. You know, <laughs> like when their undergarments alone were covering up way more skin than what we wear on the street today. You know, just for the sake of illustration here, in the 1890s, a woman's undergarments would have consisted of a base layer of a linen or cotton chemise, sort of like a slip dress. And over that would be put a corset over that would be a corset cover. And at the very least, one petticoat would go on, probably another chemise. And over all of that, a summer dress, perhaps of cotton, lace, or lawn, something very light and breathable. But the point I'm trying to make here is that what we're wearing on the street now is basically only her very first layer of undergarments, the (laughs) chemise. (laughs) Which is crazy if you think about it. Yeah, and then you didn't even... On top of that, like, talk about how she would have had a hat on, a parasol. She would have had gloves, literally covered, like, head to toe. So, Mm -hmm. you know, not exactly the coolest of outfits. And I can't help but imagine, April, what these women would have thought of us today, actually. Because, for instance, looking at me and my linen pants, they would have been like, why is that woman wearing men's clothing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That is, of course, if they got past the shock and horror that someone like you is basically walking around in their undergarments uh, on the street. So 
while we definitely champion, you know, our clothing today as being super comfortable in comparison to the past, it's really important for us to remember that women living over 100 years ago would have been entirely uncomfortable wearing what we wear today. Clothing was so intimately linked to one's respectability. So it's just, it's just important to remember that time changes things. A lot has happened between now and then to change that attitude. And we've talked multiple times on the show about this transformation in the early 20th century, especially when women were, quote unquote, freed from the corset, which had reigned supreme for hundreds of years. This period surrounding World War I witnessed a new era in fashion, a revolutionary era in fashion, in which garments, you know, the point of support for a woman's garment moved away from the waist where it had been for centuries um, and really moved to the shoulder with silhouettes that increasingly traveled away from the body. And this was a huge shift in not only the look of fashion, but also the level of ease of movement that these modern silhouettes afforded to the wearer. Designers like Paul Poiré, Jeanne Paquin, and Lucille were some of the first to introduce these ideas into the upper echelons of haute couture. But the antecedent of these high fashion styles with their new emphasis on a relaxed fit, well, they can be found in several dress reform movements of the 19th century. For some groups, their advocacy for dress reform was a political matter. For others, it was a call for clothing that promoted greater health and hygiene, while yet other movements wove these new ways of dressing into their artistic practice and philosophies, emerging of the politics of dress, practical health matters, and aesthetic exploration. And the latter is certainly the case for the subject of today's episode. And April, I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. Do you speak German? I do not speak German. We are going to slaughter these pronunciations today, friends. So just expect it, and we apologize in advance. Yeah, and we apologize because on Tuesday's episode, you know, a couple listeners kindly reached out and reminded us, you know, very nicely that we were mispronouncing the Wiener Werkstätte. So I believe that is the correct pronunciation. Um, We are pronouncing it Wiener Werkstatt, which is not correct but is how I've been pronouncing it forever, April. I don't know about you, obviously the same. So we were corrected, we stand corrected, and we are going to do our very best to pronounce Mm -hmm. German (laughs) for our German pronunciations, but please be (laughs) kind to us. Um, So today's episode, we're so excited to bring to you today because we're talking about Vienna's fame, Wiener Werkstätte, which translates to Vienna Workshop, which is inarguably one of the most influential design collectives of the 20th century, whose influence and you know, we have to say the vibrancy of their textile designs still very much resonates with us today. The workshop was founded in 1903 by architect Josef Hoffman and artist Coleman Moser, who had one goal in mind, and that was improving our everyday lives by injecting art and design into the objects that we use in those everyday lives. And that this philosophy translated into clothing that both embodied the many principles of dress reform and represented some of the most boldly graphic and innovative of textiles designs is the reason we have an episode today. At the turn of the 20th century, Vienna was the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was considered, quote, a fertile breeding ground for ideas that, for good or bad, were to shape the modern world. But before we move on any further in this episode, it is important to say that, while this is a period of great artistic innovation in Vienna, it is also an era that witnessed the rise of white nationalism and eventually the Nazi party. The time period that we're going to be talking about today is leading up to and immediately following World War I. 
And will this be the focus of today's episode? No, but we would be remiss not to at least acknowledge it. And actually, how design was employed as propaganda by political parties during this time is certainly deserving of its own episode. Mm -hmm. So let us know if that's something that you're interested in, because it's really fascinating, the intersections of politics and propaganda and clothing. Also, we actually have done an entire episode on the influence of World War I on fashion, and that episode's entitled At War with Fashion, World War I. So again, check it out if you're interested in learning more about these connections. Today, we expand upon the tale that we started earlier this week of the fashion collaborations between Gustav Klimt and his longtime companion, Emily Fluga, and her Viennese fashion house, the Schwesternfluge. Klimt and Fluga were pillars of the Viennese dress reform movement, as were many other members of the city's artistic community. And their collective commitment to dress reform was formalized in 1902 with the founding of the Organization for the Improvement of Women's Dress. And this need for change was espoused by Viennese thinkers of the era, some of whom took great exception with the quote-unquote irrational fashions of their day. But as it turns out, maybe they were a little bit late to the dress reform party. Yeah, and that's because previously the 19th century had been a hotbed for various dress reform movements in America and Britain. And one of the earliest of these movements is known as bloomerism, and it was launched in America during the 1850s by women campaigning for the right to vote. And it was really centered around a desire for comfort, ease of movement, and health concerns because, you know, wearing seven or eight layers of petticoats might not be the most hygienic, and this was before the <laughs> caged crinoline era of the 1850s. Um, you would wear layers and layers of petticoats. So as an alternative, proponents of bloomerism adopted wide-leg so-called Turkish trousers that was worn beneath a just-below-the-knee skirt. Deemed a radical at the time, we do have an entire episode devoted to bloomerism in our back catalog of episodes. So you can tune into that to learn more about these so-called bloomer girls and the gender politics of dress in the context of the American suffrage movement. Meanwhile, on British soil, Cass, Yes, yeah, so in Britain, similar sentiments were shared by members of the Rational Dress Society, which was established in London in 1881. And members of this society endorsed lightweight clothing styles, which placed little to no pressure on the body. And they believed clothes should really combine, quote, both comfort and convenience. And Rational Dress proponents believed their aims could be achieved without diverging significantly from mainstream styles of the day. So they were kind of adapting what was on the street. Yes. And around the same time, members of the English arts and crafts movement, including the textile designer William Morris and artists of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, turned their attention to the subject of dress, launching what is known as the aesthetic dress movement, a heady mix of social reform and artistic philosophy. The aesthetic dress movement in England during the 1880s and the 1890s embraced a certain amount of historic romanticism oftentimes finding inspiration in loose-flowing silhouettes from the past, which stood in direct opposition to the tight tailoring of mainstream fashions of the day. We can see this in the garments worn by some of the languid beauties depicted in the paintings of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And those garments are a lot of times more akin to the trailing waistless robes worn during the Middle Ages than styles contemporary to their own age. And it's really interesting because this look was adopted in real life by many of the wives and women associated with the Brotherhood and also other artistic and intellectual circles. 
Yeah, and again, a much deeper dive into the English aesthetic movement and dress reform is surely deserved, but for our purposes here today, let it suffice to say that the movement in Britain served as a template of sorts for our subject today, which is dress reform and Vienna at the turn of the 20th century and how it applies to the Wiener Werkstätte. The Viennese picked up the proverbial artistic mantle of William Morris, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and others, and it took on a singularity of its own in the hands of the creators of the Wiener Werkstätte. More on dress reform and the Wiener Werkstätte after a sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners, to 1904, which is when Viennese audiences were treated to an exhibition of reform dress. The designs featured followed the philosophies on hygienic clothing espoused by the German naturalist and hygienist Gustav Jaeger. And a discussion of reform dress is never complete without a brief mention of Jaeger, as he was one of the first advocates slash manufacturers of quote-unquote hygienic undergarments. His book, Sanitary Woolen System, was published in 1878 and promoted the use of undyed wool flannel or jersey knit for undergarments. And he did this because he believed wool was able to wick moisture away from the body more efficiently than cottons and linens. And he railed against the use of dyes, which he believed could be absorbed through the skin. Yeah, and of course he is not wrong, especially when we consider the fact that arsenic was used in green dyes in the 19th century, but I digress. Mm -hmm. You can tune back into our fashion victims episode to learn more about that. Yes. That Jaeger found great commercial success in his hygienic undergarment business is attested to by the fact that today, many museum costume collections feature examples of his woolen undergarments. And also his philosophy on the connection between dress and hygiene ended up being pretty much very influential the world over. It's very possible that some of the garments featured in the 1904 Viennese exhibition of reform dress was created by a couple of names our listeners might know, and that is members of or those orbiting in the circle of the Wiener Werkstätte, like painters Gustav Klimt, Kolomon Moser, and Josef Hoffmann. Founded in 1903, the Wiener Werkstätte, or Vienna Workshop, was founded by select members of the Vienna Secession, an artist collective which, as decorative art scholar Christian Wittdorf, has written, quote, called for developing an autonomous, modern, Austrian, bourgeois style, barring from the British arts and crafts movement, the secessionists adopted the credo of unity of the arts, thus negating the established hierarchical separation of the fine and the applied arts, end quote. For the designers of the Wiener Werkstätte, the decorative arts, and that included fashion and textile design, were just as valid a form of artistic expression as painting or sculpture. Ostensibly, the Wiener Werkstätte was formed in 1903 to manage the commercial endeavors of its secessionist founders, painter Coleman Moser, architect Josef Hoffmann, and textile manufacturer Fritz Warendorfer, who, along with other members, produced a remarkable array of artistic output in the mediums of ceramics, graphic design, bookbinding, furniture and interior design, landscape architecture, and glass and metal work. The Wiener Werkstätte consisted of various artistic workshops, but also provided studio space to artists and students in addition to a design school and a retail store that sold their work. The FIDA Museum, which holds a wonderful collection of Wiener Werkstätte dress and textiles, I must say, tells us, quote, the Wiener Werkstätte's goal was to improve everyday life through excellent design and craftsmanship, 
from large-scale architectural commissions to furniture and small decorative objects for the home, the designers associated with the Wiener Werkstätte envisioned all aspects of life united under a single artistic aesthetic, with all elements blending into a harmonious whole, end quote. And this was really an embodiment of the secessionist creed of Gisant's Kunstwerk, say it with me, dress listers, or total <laughs> work of art, and it absolutely included dress and textiles. Fidham reminds us that while sources differ, some 1,800 different designs were produced in multiple colorways by 80 to 100 artists throughout the reign of the Wiener Werkstätte. And while the fashion department of the Wiener Werkstätte would not be legally established until 1910, Fashion and textile design was part of the workshop's output from almost the very beginning. As early as 1904, Josef Hoffman was dabbling in both textile and fashion design. The National Gallery in Prague holds both original sketches and two photographs of Hoffman's fashion designs realized around this same time period. Scholar Angela Volker emphasizes the novel nature of his designs, which embodied, quote, a simplicity that flew in the face of current trends. Hoffman employed a straightforward T-shaped silhouette for the dress, which we're speaking of now, which also featured narrow half-length sleeves. The hem of the dress skims the ground, and it completely lacks definition at the waist. Devoid of any form of embellishment, the dress really depends on its textile motif for its visual interest. And, And the textile motif is a vague suggestion of fields brimming with botanicals, and that's given by way of this sort of graphic linear patterning. Yeah, and I mean, this is just remarkable, right? Especially when we consider that this is 1904. So, you know, very much the silhouette of mainstream fashion is still heavily dependent on definition at the waist, of course, which is, you know, given to us by tightly tailored, sinewy powder pigeon silhouettes, which is, of course, aided by that famed S-bend corset, which, you know, the silhouette pushed a woman's shoulders forward and her hips and buttocks back. Hoffman's designs from this period were wildly divergent, and the silhouette can maybe be best described as a long t-shirt dress. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's just like a t-shirt extended to the floor. For sure. That, and you know, because it floats away from the body and this gentle A-line shape to the floor. So no definition at the waist or hips during this period is unthinkable, and yet here we are. So You know, these designs are still keeping with the precedent set by the aesthetic movement in the 19th century, which frequently looked to medieval silhouettes for inspiration. Yeah, and it's that same kind of like A-line, kind of loose robe look. Another of Hoffman's early, quote-unquote, early fashion designs from 1910 uses this exact same T-shaped silhouette. And the garment, which resides in the Austrian Museum of Applied and Contemporary Arts in Vienna, has a charming story to go along with it. Cass apparently two cousins, Johanna Justine and Helene Gabrielle Sophie Wittgenstein, commissioned Hoffman to make them identical outfits to wear to a masked ball. And only one of the outfits still survives. It's a dress, and it features a white satin ground. And over that is laid black satin, um, kind of like, a, like an overlay of the dress, in which large ovals have been voided. And then within those voided ovals are additional black satin appliques of scrolling vines and graphic arabesques, all of this paired with severe rectangles and diamond shapes. And the patterning is vaguely reminiscent of Art Nouveau, but when it gets paired with the hard edges of these geometric shapes, it becomes this visual language all of its own, and one that is very Wiener Werkstätte. 
Yeah, and we're going to have to post images of some of this stuff because it kind of has to be seen to be believed. Mm-hmm. But between 1903 and 1910, fashion goods utilizing Wiener Werkstätte's own original textile designs were available for purchase at the Wiener Werkstätte's retail shop, which is located in the spa town of Carlsbad, which is now modern-day Karlovy Vary in this Czech Republic. And the retail shop was run by Eduard Josef Wimmer Viskril, who was tapped to head the fashion and textiles department of the Wiener Werkstätte when they were officially organized from a legal standpoint, and that happened in late 1910. Why make these departments official fashion and textiles if they had already been designing original fashion and textile items for many years, you might be wondering. Well, it seems that while the Wiener Werkstätte was producing designs between 1903 and 1910, they were not actually the manufacturers of them. The designs were put into production outside of the Wiener Werkstätte Ateliers, and this arrangement did not require them to hold a trade license as a manufacturer. However, when the decision was made to open a dedicated fashion workshop with production capabilities, they did need a business permit to operate legally, And even still, Cass, some sources note that the production of Wiener Werkstätte printed textiles continued to be outsourced until after World War I. Some important examples of Wiener Werkstätte design originate from this period of 1910-1911, and luckily for us, they're held by museum collections, so we can admire them today. So, for instance, the Harvard Art Museum holds two colorways, one in bright blue and another in grass green, of Colo Moser's Mountain Butterfly, a Japanese-inspired print of abstracted insect forms among reeds on a white ground. And they also have an example of Josef Hoffman's Apollo, which features black heart-shaped leaves scrolling on a white ground. And then there's also rows of orange and yellow bell-shaped flowers, which alternate directions across its width. Both are wonderfully and boldly graphic. They're highly hyper-stylized in the signature style of the Wiener Werkstätte. And this really sets the stage for our deco in the coming years and then also really for the 1960s. I feel like if you look at some of these, you're like, whoa, that would have been from the 60s, not, you know, circa 1910, but. For sure. And another design from this period is very fun for the fact that photographs document its realization into a fashionable garment. The textile entitled Ant, designed by Vimmer Viscrill, curiously does not feature ants at all, but rather bubblegum pink flowers scattered across a black and gray vertical striped ground. And this was used for a reform style caftan made for Sonia Knips, um, subject of one of Gustav Klimt's most notable works. And it features a bateau neckline, which is banded in black straight across the clavicle. And there's another wide black band that defines the center front, likewise at the edges of the sleeves and the side seams. And then the the rest of the main body of the caftan is this ant textile. A slight train of about one foot or about 30 centimeters extends from the back. Can I just tell you how happy the descriptor bubblegum pink makes me? I don't know why. It sends me back to my childhood, but I love it. Absolutely. It makes me so happy. (laughs) So both Moser and Hoffman served as instructors at the School of Applied Arts in Vienna, and many of their students later became designers for the Wiener Werkstätte. Notably, Leo Blonder, who also produced prints and graphic design under the Wiener Werkstätte. And forgive me, dress listeners, Valley Weissel-Thier. 
April's nodding her head, who is perhaps <laughs> best known as a ceramic artist. Maria Lacars Strauss was the most prolific designer for the textile department, producing some 200 motifs during her decade-long tenure, eight years of which she also co-managed the fashion department with Max Schnitzchek. French fashion took notice in 1911 with the now-famed visit of Paul Paré to the Wiener Werkstätte in late November. The Gesamtkunstwerk, or total work of art zeitgeist of the workshop, meant that wallpaper, fashion, stationery, tableware, and lighting design might all unite under a singular design aesthetic, and this made a major impression on the French couturier. So much so that upon his return to Paris, he expanded his own fashion empire into cosmetics and fragrances and interior design with divisions that were named after his two young daughters, Rosine and Martine. So to learn a little bit more about Poiré's forays into lifestyle branding, you can tune into our episode, King of Fashion, which is dedicated entirely to him. Yeah, because, I mean, it must be said, this is pretty revolutionary concept at this time, right? To mm-hmm. be able to buy all of these different renditions of this various textile and put it into your home. So during his visit, Paré also apparently purchased a large cache of Wiener Werkstätte textiles that he used in his own garments. And that's something that art historian Heather Hess actually credits with helping to make the textiles of the Wiener Werkstätte their quote-unquote greatest international success. And that's because purchasing textiles from the Wiener Werkstätte was not an opportunity afforded solely to one of French fashion's hottest couturiers. Lengths of Wiener Werkstätte textiles were offered for sale to the public as well. And funnily enough, this actually makes it a bit confusing for collectors or even historians, anyone studying these pieces, to know if items made from Wiener Werkstätte textiles like, you know, pillows, toys, lampshades, even garments. You know, the question is, were they produced by the Wiener Werkstätte or were they bought by someone um, and made into, you know, a garment or later like a homes crafts person? So also a fun fact that we learned about Poiré while working on this episode is that apparently he hired Josef Hoffman to design a home for him, which Hoffman did in 1912, but apparently it was never built. So apparently this was, you know, yet another one of Poiré's big dreams that went bust. Um, Maybe he was just too busy at this time. 1911 and 1912 was a huge, you know, point in his career. Yeah, he he had a lot going on. He was launching multiple businesses. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 1912 also saw the inclusion of the workshop's fashion department in an exhibition of, quote, historic and contemporary fashion in Berlin, where the Wiener Werkstätte was given their very own room. And the garments contributed by Vimmer Viskrill and three other designers proved so popular that the workshop was invited back to Berlin the following year to participate in a, quote, fashion show in the Parisian style. And the Wiener Werkstatt's avant-garde designs on view might have raised an eyebrow or two had it not been for the fact that some of the tenets of reform dress had already seeped into high fashion. Designers including Poiré, Lucille, and Paquin had made popular corset-optional empire waist or empire waist silhouettes very popular over the course of several previous seasons. And this made what was once kind of novel about the Wiener Werkstätte and the aesthetic movement's unbound silhouettes, well, it was now becoming increasingly familiar to a broader audience. 
This crossover was further supported by the fact that the mainstream Viennese fashion press also began covering Wiener Werkstätte fashion collections. So in 1911, the magazine Wiener Mode specifically mentions a very specific Viennese-style dress, which had a high ampere waist and columnar skirt, which sounds remarkably like many of the most avant-garde Paris fashions from the same period. And this was a fact acknowledged by the journalist Marie Gelber, who noted, quote, their slight Parisian influence but were nevertheless new and imaginative and unmistakably Viennese, end quote. So it seems perhaps that the stylistic influences flowed both ways, which is not actually that surprising, I guess, in this um, very, very artistic period. They were cross-pollinating each other, I suppose. Yes. The World War I years would see the Wiener Werkstätte fashion and textile departments simultaneously flounder and flourish. Austria-Hungary was front and center in the four-year-long war that pitted the Triple Alliance of Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Italy against the allied forces of France, Russia, Britain, and later the U.S. in what would become the deadliest battle the world had ever seen. And the Wiener Werkstätte anticipated a downturn in sales as a result of the hostilities and applied for a permit to produce blouses en masse. This type of mass production apparently cast required a different kind of permit, and they were granted this in late September of 1914. But then this was kind of immediately followed by the unfortunate firing of the entire staff of the fashion department. Probably they were freaking out because of the war, and um, it would only be a few dozen of those employees that would be rehired a few months later to run the fashion department's then marginally successful blouse manufacturing operation. It's a little confusing what was going on in this time period, not going to lie. Yeah, not surprising either. There's a lot going on. And in 1916, the Wiener Werkstätte fashion department was reporting huge losses, but still managed to set up new showrooms, workshops, and actually surprisingly opened an ultra-luxurious fashion boutique in the Esterhazy Palace. In 1917, they even expanded into Marienbad in what is now the Czech Republic, although given it was a resort town, you know, that kind of the money leisured set was still going to, I guess it's not surprising that this was the clientele that could afford to purchase the, quote, hand-printed silks, dresses, blouses, hats, and other fashionable items that have so delighted society. And that little quote was from a promotional ad from, from the day, which is kind of fun. A seminal figure in the Wiener Werkstätte operations emerged during the war years in the young Dagobart Pesch, who initially produced textile and wallpaper designs for the workshop. But as his involvement grew, his work expanded into toy design, glass, jewelry, stationery, and poster design. While this sort of cross-disciplinary exploration of design practice was fairly routine within the Werkstätte's membership, Pesh was particularly industrious because he also designed for other firms working in the manufacture of carpets, ceramics, and furniture. For several years, he also served as the director of the Wiener Werkstätte's operations in Switzerland, which were launched as an independent entity in 1917 in the hopes of it generating additional revenue streams um, because they were a neutral nation, of course. So Pesha's oversight of the Swiss arm of the Wiener Werkstätte lasted but only a couple of years, and that's because his design career was cut far too short. At the age of 36, he succumbed to cancer. And upon his death, Josef Hoffman lauded him as the, quote, greatest ornamental genius Austria has produced since the Baroque. 
So mourned was Pesce's passing that the Museum for Art and Industry in Vienna mounted a memorial exhibition in his name with two full rooms devoted to his work, while other rooms featured other Wiener Werkstätte products by other designers. And needless to say, the Wiener Werkstätte survived the war, but so too did its financial difficulties. And we're going to find out more about that after a brief sponsor break. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back. It did not appear initially that the Wiener Werkstatt's fashion department would survive the volatile post-war years. Supposedly, as early as 1920, Wimmer Viskerl, who had served as head of the department, even advocated for shutting it down. Perhaps this is because, as one employee put it at the time, that their clientele was no longer young, quote, I only knew one young woman who had her clothes made there, and that was the utterly unsophisticated Anna Freud. <laughs> that particular Anna Freud, of course, being the daughter of Sigmund Freud. So becoming out of date. Mm-hmm. And while the Wiener Werkstätte did make a successful showing at the groundbreaking 1925 Art Deco exhibition in Paris, the remainders of the 1920s saw the Wiener Werkstätte's fashion department in a constant state of turmoil. It was 
closed. It was reopened as an independent venture. It was closed again. It merged and unmerged so many times, it actually kind of defies explanation. But in 1928, the 25th anniversary of the Wiener Werkstätte in its totality was celebrated in lavish form that spared no expense. And the festivities actually culminated with a quote-unquote ceremonial fashion show. We are not exactly clear what was ceremonial about this fashion show, but given a thousand-page catalog, that's right, you heard me, folks, thousand-page catalog, given that was produced in conjunction with the anniversary in the hopes of clearing old stock, well, it might be deduced that the ceremony was a tad more funereal than it was congratulatory. (laughs) And uh, scholar Rebecca Hoos notes that from 1930 onwards, the fashion and textile departments were continuously downsized until their ultimate dissolution in 1932. In September of that year, the remaining stock of Wiener Werkstätte textiles was put up for auction before the company as a whole filed for bankruptcy the following month in October. Officially speaking, the fashion and textile departments of the Wiener Werkstätte had a 22-year run and nearly 30 if you count the seven years of production before the departments were officially formed in 1910. However, it seems that by the early to mid-1920s, the fashion output of the Wiener Werkstätte had kind of lost its cutting edge. A Wiener Werkstätte dress in the collection of the Costume Institute at the Met from around this time, circa 1922, kind of attests to this fact for us. So, you know, it's a lovely day dress made of silk. It has an asymmetrical hem that hits below the knee. It has fitted sleeves that terminate at the elbow and a slight flare. But, you know, when you look at this garment compared to what they were doing like even 10 years earlier, it's there's nothing really particularly daring or novel about the silhouette. In fact, it is very much keeping with mainstream silhouettes of the period. And the only thing that might betray the dress as the work of the Wiener Werkstätte is the silk textile, which features a boldly graphic pale blue, white, and orange floral motif set against a black ground. Rebecca Hoos sums it up very well, quote, Reform dress in Vienna at the turn of the century began as a therapeutic anti-fashion movement that was glamorized and transformed into stylish dress with only a few years. The establishment of the Wiener Werkstätte Fashion Division, which was organized, she says 1911, but also it was 1910, marked this transformation. And again, dress listeners, this really drives home the point of the legacy of the dress reform movements of the late 19th and early 20th century. Dress reform movements from bloomerism to the artistic and aesthetic dress reformers to the output of the Wiener Werkstätte and later the Bauhaus have all contributed to and informed the level of ease and practicality we expect from our clothes today. It has often been those who push the boundaries of their era sartorial conventions that have left some of the most indelible marks in the history of fashion including our subject for this past Tuesday's episode, Gustav Klimp and Emily Floga. They are, you know, inarguably some of the most famous personalities surrounding this Wiener Werkstatt circle. So you can tune back in to check that out if you haven't already. I do believe that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy that dress reform movements have left in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you know we will be posting images of Werkstätte fashions and textiles this week. 
If you have the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we do so appreciate it. We also appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you very soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.